Welcome to the show, my ghoulish guests. Tonight, we're unearthing our third Halloween spooktacular on The Wall Show. And spooktacular, it will be. We'll rattle our brains with Dr. Jana Andronowski, a forensic anthropologist and anatomist, as she sheds light on the bony secrets of our past and dares to delve into the eerie history of body snatching, a grave matter in the 1800s. We'll then have a witching chat with Bree and Cord, the ghost hosts of the new Bell 5-1 show, Bree and Cord's Sights Unseen. They'll recount some of their most hair-raising tales from the province's darkest corners. <laughs> and last, but certainly not least, we'll converse with Shane Mills, one of the Dr. Frankensteins behind the Grindmine horror films and the new spine-chilling series on The Old Hag. He's also stirring the cauldron on Fogfest, Newfoundland's premier horror film festival. He'll share his perspective on why he thinks people love being scared. We have a skeleton of content unearthed in tonight's episode. So hold on to your broomsticks and let's conjure up some fun. Hi, Dr. Ndowski. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I should say, uh, you know, this is your third time, either between the TV show or through the radio. So it's great to be the go-to when it comes to anatomy and, and as you should be because... You have a really multidisciplinary background. You do a lot of different things and wear a lot of different hats. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a background of yourself? Absolutely. Thank you, Mike. So I'm an assistant professor of biomedical sciences in the Division of Biomedical Sciences, Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University. And that's only one of the hats that I wear. I'm also the anatomy undergraduate curriculum content lead for our medical learners and the forensic anthropologist for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Mm-hmm. And in terms of my research, I mostly focus on the microscopic skeletal anatomy, but for our learners, we focus on the macroscopic or gross anatomy, which we'll be talking about a bit more today. Yeah, that's right. And you're an anatomist by trade, but maybe you could explain to folks what a forensic anthropologist does, because that might be a job that they haven't heard of. Yes. So a forensic anthropologist also has many roles. So primarily, we assist law enforcement to reflect information about human skeletal remains uh, that are unknown. So for example, first we can tell uh, if the bones are human or not. So it's common in Newfoundland, for example, for a hunter or a berry picker to come across a decomposed object that looks like a human hand, but most oftentimes it's a bear paw. These can look remarkably similar to human hands and feet. So that's a call that I often get. Uh, We also help to identify any remains that might be unrecognizable or fragmented. So anything burned, for example, would be the realm of a forensic anthropologist. So not only do we work to recover unknown skeletal remains in the field, but we also do workups in our laboratories. And this involves uh, what's called a biological profile. So we can determine the age at death based on macroscopic and microscopic indicators of bone, uh, as well as the sex. So male or female, not gender biological sex, that's an important distinction, as well as individualizing features about that individual. So for example, is there trauma to the bones? Is there any disease conditions that can be identified? How tall was this person during life or living height? So these are all questions that we can assist law enforcement uh, with answering to try to identify missing people. That's interesting. So when people think about things like dental records or having an x-ray in the past, those are things that they can use to correlate or compare people in the the remains you find if you think you have somebody? That's correct. So dental records and frontal sinus pattern, for example, are features of 
uh, are hard tissues that can be used for identification. And the medical examiner, the forensic pathologist, will make that identification. So the role of the forensic anthropologist is to describe these demographic details about the unknown person. And then we give that information to law enforcement, to the medical examiner's office who go on to make the identification. And I think an important point of distinction is that unlike the TV shows where you just hit all this sort of technology and all this fancy stuff happens, it takes somebody like yourself who's been trained specifically and a lot of hard work, a lot of time to be able to do this uh, this this job. Yes, it's definitely not instantaneous uh, as, it, as it appears on CSI or Bones, right? So we don't have a hologram machine. I don't have a handsome FBI partner. Uh, these are some of the important differences. That's right. But that brings us to the next thing, which is your other very important hat is is teaching the medical learners for a medical school all about human anatomy. And you've taught me a lot about this field, but this field of study has been going on for a long time. How far back does the study of anatomy go? So uh, before we get into any stories, uh, why don't you explain why anatomy is such an important subject? Yes. So anatomy is the basis of a lot of different professional as well as uh, medical education programs. So it really is foundational. And we can consider anatomy as the study of external and internal structures of the body, as well as the physical relationships between body parts. And since we exist in three dimensions, studying a selfless donation like a cadaveric dissection really offers the opportunity for our students, our learners, to appreciate the 3D spatial relationships between anatomical structures. That's right. And people have been using these in medical programs for a long time. Remember, people have probably seen movies where they used to have the theaters where people would look at cadaveric dissections. But sometimes, and this is why the rules are now in place, this wasn't always done, or at least the bodies weren't collected in the proper way. Do you care to share the story of, of why those rules are now in place? Yes. So as you discussed, it is really critical that our anatomical donation protocols are in place uh, but this wasn't always the case. And the first one was enacted in Britain in 1832. And there was sort of a pair of interesting fellows who really uh, initiated the foundation for this. But our study of anatomy actually goes back a lot further than the 1800s. So we actually see anatomists prior to the birth of Christ that extended their anatomical knowledge and dissection protocols around 275 BC, for example. And some people might be familiar uh, with Galen, who was the prince of physicians or the physician to gladiators. And he dissected animals and described the anatomy, but not always accurately. So over time, we sort of see this development of this issue of access to anatomical donations and this need for the study of actual human cadavers so we can better treat patients and diagnose disease and pathology. Mm. Yeah, you wouldn't think that anatomy would be started by people looking at gladiators, but it makes perfect sense. You know, at the end of the day, that's a, there's a lot of uh, injuries, of course, if they do make it. And if they don't make it, well, then they've got, a, they've got somebody to study. Tonight, we learn all about bones, body snatching, sights unseen, and scary movie magic. Stick around, because we'll be right back with our Halloween Spooktacular on The Wall Show. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back. Tonight we learn about bones, body snatching, sights unseen, and scary movie magic. Let's get back to our Halloween Spooktacular. 
Now, recently, when you get into the formal approach towards looking at doing full cadaveric specimens in the university setting, it was tough to sometimes track down these people. So these two individuals that were able to provide an enormous amount of bodies weren't necessarily doing it in a very ethical way. Yes, that's correct. So these individuals were William Burke and William Hare, and they were around in the 19th century in Edinburgh's Westport area, and they became infamous essentially for resurrecting or body snatching recently dead individuals, so decedents. And during this 19th century period, there was a chronic shortage of cadavers for anatomy courses in the Edinburgh area. And this really gave rise to this industry of grave robbing or body snatching. And Burke and Hare were the best known resurrection men as they were called, and they took their practice one step further. So during the period between 1827 and 1828, the pair murdered at least 16 people and sold the cadavers to a Edinburgh anatomist who worked sort of outside the university setting in private practice uh, by the name of Dr. Robert Knox. So William Burke was from Ireland, so he came to Scotland to work, I believe, on the Union Canal. And when that work finished, he moved into a lodging house owned by the wife of William Hare. So the two became good friends and they sort of ran this lodging house together. During this time, there was a lodger who died and he owed Hare some money. So to recruit some losses, Hare decided to sell his body to Dr. Robert Knox. And they realized this could be very lucrative income for them and became sort of impatient to wait for people to die under their watch. So they took to murder uh, to supply the anatomy school of, of Dr. Robert Knox. So this went on again for sort of a short period because they became quite bold in their targets. They would entice people with alcohol who were known to the community and use a method that became known as, as burking or smothering of these victims. And in late 1828, the police ended up raiding the house because they were informed by a former guest that there was a body under a bed. But by the time the police arrived, there was only a spot of blood. So Burke's story and his wife's stories didn't match up, and they were both arrested. Mr. Burke, Mrs. Burke, you're under arrest with the charge of murder. And then the Hares were arrested the day after that. But Hare essentially escaped the king's evidence against Burke because he threw him under the bus for all of their wrongdoings, and Burke was eventually hanged in January of 1829. And in accordance with current law at the time, his body was actually handed over to the medical school for dissection and a skeleton was displayed in the anatomical museum and it still is to this day. So people don't really know what happened to the other, to Hare. That's unclear. Uh, some stories suggest that he spent the rest of his life as a beggar in the streets of London. Other evidence suggests he went back to Ireland, but he was never tried for the involvement in the murders. And neither was Robert Knox, actually. But his career did drastically suffer from this. But I do want to say that because of these two individuals, this really is why we saw kind of the birth of the first anatomical uh, act in Britain. And the acts in Canada and America followed shortly thereafter in the 1880s, for example. So again, it's an unfortunate set of circumstances, but Burke and Hare really are the real authors uh, of this initial measure. And now access to corpses under this act that were unclaimed after death could be used 
responsibly for anatomical dissection, or a person could donate their next of kin for the purposes of anatomical research. Well, that's right. And, you know, th- those things, there's reasons the rules are put in place, and that's obviously one of them. Another thing I wanted to ask you, and and this is a big, when I talk about Halloween, everybody thinks about skeletons. So you're a bone biologist. Why do skeletons survive in the grave as opposed to anything else? Like, why, do they, why are they the remnants that are still there? Right. So bone has excellent survivability. So it has both organic and inorganic components to it. And these can survive for centuries after death, but it really depends on the preservation environment. Like for example, in Newfoundland, we have this really rocky sort of acidic soil and it it doesn't lend well to to bony preservation. But there are certain situations, for example, if you have uh, an ironclad coffin, you know, your remains can survive for centuries. But I always say that we can learn so much about the skeleton because it's sort of this record of aspects of our life, right? So your bone can tell us information about your age, about uh, your sex, so male or female, uh, not gender, it's an important distinction, as well as any trauma or pathology that that individual sustained during life. So we can really learn a lot about the life history of this person. And by working to create what we call this biological profile, so all these aspects that are individualizing about a person, we can weave them back into the social fabric or identify them if it's a modern case, a forensic case. Well, that brings me to an interesting philosophical question. You know, why do you think people are so fascinated with bones and bodies and what happens to us after we pass away? That's a good question, Mike. And I think a lot of the interest in the human body and forensic science and medical drama these days has to do with our media, right? And there is something I talk about publicly called the CSI effect. So people have these ideas that, you know, forensic scientists or medical doctors have all these capabilities to analyze our bodies in these new and exciting ways, you know, with hologram machines or different type of imaging. And this isn't always reality, but I think it it intrigues people, right? And I also think that when you learn about your own body, when you learn about the anatomy, you never think about your body the same way again, right? And so I think once you start learning about, okay, I have 206 bones in my adult human skeleton, you know, you're interested in learning their names or what they articulate with. And uh, so I think that this can be really uh, fascinating, especially for lifelong learners, right? People who uh, might not necessarily have a medical background, but uh, are interested in always uh, learning something new. So I think that those could be reasons. Yeah, well, and that's one of the things that you know I wanted to talk to you about is you've got a big event coming up next week, and it's going to be all about teaching people that are interested a little bit about bones just in time for Halloween. Why don't you tell me a bit about that? Yes, thanks, Mike. So I will be participating in a seminar that's part of the Science on the Rock series, and this is hosted by Kitty Bitty Brewery. And so my talk is going to be focused on how we can use forensic anthropology to help solve criminal cases. So I haven't talked a lot about forensic anthropology so far, but essentially this is the science of applying principles of biological anthropology to the legal process for the purpose of identifying unknown skeletal remains. And so I'm gonna introduce methods that we employ as forensic anthropologists in our examination of human skeletal remains to extract vital information regarding the identity of an unknown person and the circumstances surrounding their death. And as part of this, I'm also going to have a visual presentation and hands-on demonstration with bone casts 
that are interactive and we can teach attendees to implement the methods presented as well as test their forensic anthropological skills. That's very cool. I think a lot of people are interested that shows like Bones and things like that have really made the forensics world something that's mainstream these days. But I really appreciate you taking the time today and sharing your knowledge. So just a reminder, if somebody is getting a skeleton costume this year, how many bones should that have in the body? If it's an adult, 206. Juvenile <laughs> is a different story because we're both born with lots of pieces and parts, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Mike. Happy Halloween. You too. Tonight we learn all about bones, body snatching, sights unseen, and scary movie magic. Stick around because we'll be right back with our Halloween spooktacular on The Wall Show. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back. Tonight we learn about bones, body snatching, sights unseen, and scary movie magic. Let's get back to our Halloween spectacular. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having us. I should say welcome back to the show because you guys did our first Halloween special ever, and it was so good. I gotta have it again this year. We gotta do another another version of it. How have you guys been? Great. We've been good. We've been busy. How have you been? I've I've been the same way. I just been there's been lots happening lately, and I think that you know I've been following you guys' progression. I mean, the first time we talked, you guys had your podcast that started, and you were talking about doing a television show. That was just like brand new news. But since then, you guys have actually launched it successfully. Tell me a little bit about the program you guys developed. The first time we talked to you, we were just waiting on approval for Abandoned NL, so we went to film that. That was a big hit. Everyone loved it, of course. <laughs> And then we actually uh, we actually just wrapped another show called Brian Court Sights Unseen. So that should be out soon as well. So basically, you guys have traveled around. I mean, Newfoundland's kind of a spooky place anyway, you know, with the weather we have here and the fact that it's half gloomy three quarters of the year. But tell me a bit about like what you guys do in that show. So when we did our last show, it was more about like the buildings and stuff. But this time we go into the communities and talk more about like their quirks and their spooky stories and what little folklores they have because Newfoundland is filled with folklore and little stories. Yeah, I remember the first time I ever had the old Haggins we talked about last time was when I first moved to Newfoundland and I was like getting sleep paralysis. I had no idea what was happening <laughs> to me, but it only happened when I moved to Newfoundland. So there has to be something behind it. Of all the places you guys went, what were some of your favorites? Cor, maybe you can list a few of those. Um. I really loved going to Crescent Lake, which is random. Didn't know it existed. They have their own um, version of the Loch Ness Monster called Cressy. Okay. <laughs> Did not know that either. Giant, just like a giant lake eel. They have a statue of her. The whole town is very prideful about Cressy. They have marks at their little um, pharmacy that they have there. There's like... I'm wearing it right now, actually. Of oh, course. Of course, right on. Monster Believer. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the randomest thing. I love it. Um, they have a boardwalk, and on the boardwalk, there's like plaques of all the sightings by locals Cressy over the years. Okay. It's hilarious. That's amazing. I did, where is Crescent Lake? It's out by like Robert's Arms. I don't know okay. geography. 
In the small Newfoundland town of Robert's Arm lies the expansive Crescent Lake. Shimmering under the moonlight, the lake with its peaceful facade has a tale that's been whispering among the locals for generations. A tale that makes one think twice before dipping a toe in the waters after dusk. The sun was just setting, casting an orange hue over the water. A soft breeze rustled in the trees, and the birds chirped their evening songs. Everything seemed as tranquil as any other evening in Robert's Arm. But as the darkness descended, something began to stir beneath the surface. Local fishermen setting out their night lines have often spoken of an unsettling feeling, a sense of being watched. The lake's water, unusually calm and clear, occasionally shows unexplained ripples and disturbances. Some say they've seen dark shapes gliding beneath the water, too large to be any known fish. The older residents of the town would nod knowingly at these accounts, speaking of Cressy, the lake's legendary inhabitant. Described as an enormous serpent or a mammoth eel, Cressy has been part of the town's folklore for as long as anyone can remember. Last one in's a rotten egg! Hey guys, wait up! Wait for me! One chilling account came from a group of teenagers who, during a late night swim, felt something brush against their feet. Did you feel that? Ah, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. I don't know. Thinking it was just underwater plants or fish, they initially dismissed it. But then one of them pointed towards the center of the lake, where a long, sinuous shadow seemed to glide just below the water's surface. Well, what's that out there? <gasps> where? I think we should get out of here, guys. Yeah, help me out. Before they could react, it disappeared into the depths. The shaken group quickly left the water, vowing never to swim there again at night. On foggy mornings, when the mist hangs heavy over the lake, fishermen have reported hearing strange, mournful cries echoing over the water, a sound that no bird or animal in the region could produce. Could it be Cressy, lamenting her solitude? Theories about Cressy's origin abound. Some say she's a relic from the time of the dinosaurs, a survivor of an age long past. Others speculate she might be an enormous eel or undiscovered species. But most agree one thing. Crescent Lake holds a mystery that's yet to be unraveled. Today, whether fact or folklore, the tale of Cressy remains a cherished part of local culture. Visitors to Crescent Lake are often regaled with stories of sightings and strange occurrences, adding a touch of mystery to their journey. So next time you find yourself near Crescent Lake, and the moonlight casts long shadows over the water, take a moment to peer into its depths. Who knows, you might just catch a glimpse of Cressy, the elusive guardian of Crescent Lake. Mine was definitely Lanta Meadows. I've wanted to go there since I was really young, and they told me that going to Lanta Meadows was my treat for getting in the boat. That's that's good. And was it what's yeah, the we, story there? Is it because of the historical aspect of it, or is there actually some goose yeah. stories around it? Well, I just thought it like I saw the tourism commercial when I was super young of the little redhead girl running around. And ever since then I wanted to go peek at the Viking huts and see what that's like. And we did get to hang out with them and it was like really cool. It was amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. It's a UNESCO World Heritage site now, I think, too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah cool well we have lots of history here and there's lots of stories and what i'm hoping today is that you guys could share a couple of your favorite ghost stories for us right now that you've learned in your travels around uh who wants to start out so we went to bonavista and there's this house called the mock beggar 
plantation. It's the Bradley Hems, I think is what it's called. So this is this could be inaccurate also. But there's this can <laughs> there's a canal there and they were doing expansion on it one time and they found these graves, like these coffins. And this was a long time ago. And they found out that the mud had preserved the coffin so well that the bodies were really well preserved. This happened in like I don't even know, early 1900s, I think they might have found them. They dated the clothes of the bodies back to the 1600s, I believe. And the coffins were made out of wood, of trees that they're not native to Newfoundland. So it's like this huge mystery. I don't think they exactly know like where the coffins came from, if it was a plague. It was like a lot. It was like men, women, children. And it's just like this huge mystery of the town. It's really creepy. <laughs> Did they think that maybe it came from a boat? I think so. That is shipwreck. Huh. Interesting. And so how many bodies were there? Um, I'm actually not sure. So when we film the show, we kind of go in blind, right? Mm -hmm. We do have a narrator that gives the straight facts. So we'll probably find Reggie when, yeah, when the show airs, we'll, we'll find out with everyone else. That's all right. (laughs) Yeah. That's good. Super creepy. This, uh, the Bradley house is this huge house. We went into it. It's all, preserved like their artifacts from like the family that lived there it's like very it almost feels like you step into like a game of clue like the house is that it's very creepy very weird vibe when we were in there well that's good all right well so that's cord's story that's creepy that happened here in the province what about you well i'm gonna play off that one when i came home i was telling my parents where we had gone and my dad got like super spooked and my dad doesn't believe in like ghosts or anything like that and he was like did anyone talk to you about the mock beggar witch and I was like no and he was like when your grandfather was a young boy he was cursed by the mock beggar witch out there and she found out he had done something to like her property or something and so she cursed him to where he was just gonna die like she's cursed him with the stigmas and then he figured out it was her and cursed her so she couldn't pee. And so she was filling up past like all these days. And so they met up with each other in like the front yard and they were like, if you drop your curse, I'll drop mine. And she was like, well, you're gonna die from mine anyways. And he was like, well, I'm fine, but you're about to explode and so he agreed to drop the curse because she was about to explode and so yeah and then she peed and my pop was fine and my dad we could when we went out there it was really bad rain and when i went to like open the door like one thunder crash went off my dad was like a witch knew and I was like, True. okay, literally, I got a video of that happening. It was like the loudest crash of thunder. Like the second Brie like was walking into the Bradley house. And it it was like right before we were about to go into the house, it just downpoured. Like it was out of nowhere too. And it was just like Brie was trying to get into the house. We were already in there. You could, we weren't allowed to like get the floors wet because it's all preserved and stuff. Like they were really strict about it. We were like, this is creepy. Like seriously. 
I mean, what are the chances of a thunder and lightning storm in Newfoundland? First of all, like we get so few and, and the day you go visit a haunted house. I think my favorite part of that story, though, is that only a Newfoundlander would come up with the way to be able to curse somebody that way with a bit of a sense of humor, right? Like, I think that's, yeah. that's, that's great. Nestled in the historic town of Bonavista, the ancient and imposing Bachbaker plantation stands the testament to times long gone. Its white walls and age-darkened wood have witnessed centuries of history, and some say continue to play host to souls who once walked its halls. The day was drawing to a close as evening shadows slowly crept over Bonavista. The once busy streets grew quiet, and a mist began to settle over the town, giving it an otherworldly glow. As the lights diminished and the mist thickened, the tales of the Mockbeger plantation came alive. Sarah, a local resident, had always been fascinated by the legend surrounding the plantation. One evening, driven by curiosity, she decided to explore the house after the last tour had gone. She wandered through the dimly lit rooms, each filled with artifacts of a bygone era, when suddenly a chill descended upon her. The air grew cold, and she felt an unseen presence. Entering the main parlor, she saw a faint outline of a figure in period clothing, standing near the window. The ghostly apparition seemed to be gazing outside, waiting for someone long lost. Sarah, paralyzed with a mix of fear and awe, could only watch as the figure slowly faded away, leaving behind an eerie silence. On another occasion, a night watchman claimed to hear distant laughter of children echoing through the empty halls. The sound, innocent in nature, seemed oddly out of place in the stillness of the night. Following the sound, he stumbled upon the room where toys from the 17th century lay scattered, as if played with recently, yet no child was in sight. But perhaps the most chilling tales come from the numerous visitors who have reported feeling an unseen hand touching their shoulder or a whisper in their ear while exploring the plantation's older sections. These gentle yet unmistakable encounters seem to suggest the spirits of Mockbaker Plantation are malevolent, but instead trying to connect with the living, yearning to share their stories. To this day, those who visit Mockbaker Plantation are advised to tread lightly and to always show respect. For while the walls may not speak, the spirits within them certainly have tales to tell, ensuring the plantation remains one of the most haunting and intriguing spots in all of Newfoundland. You guys have been friends for not super long, but for a while now. What brought you guys together? Because, I mean, this is kind of a an interesting hobby you guys have. Well, we met through social media uh, in 2020 during pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> we became instant best friends. And you think dark times. We uh, we moved in together. We became roommates, and we would find like when we were getting ready and stuff. If we were walking past the other one's room. We were kind of watching the same true crime YouTubers and stuff. And we were like, "Oh, you're, you're into that too? Like, have you seen this girl's video and all that?" And then we went into that second lockdown in 2021, and we were like, "We should start a podcast. Let's just do it." Yeah. And uh, then Meddling Kids podcast was born. That's awesome. I, I think that for people that want to watch your show and then see some of the province, places that we might not have heard of, like I didn't know we had a, a Present Lake Monster, how can they check out your show? It'll be on Bell 5 TV 1 in just a little, I think, before or after Halloween. We don't have the set dates just yet, but it'll be in fall. And is season one still available on there? It is indeed. It is. 
Right on. And of your places from uh, season one, any places that stand out that people should go see? If they're listening to this, they're like, I want to do a staycation this year. I want to check out Newfoundland. But I got a bit of a creepy vibe to what I want to see. What would you recommend? I feel like the Trinity Loop is worth going out to see. The Trinity Loop is pretty creepy. It's the abandoned amusement park that we went to. And yeah. I saw that one. Yeah, that was really yeah. creepy. It was a big building that almost looked like a bomb shelter and there was all spray painted yeah. afterwards, which they must have, what was it a petting zoo or something? No, it was yeah. just an amusement. Was it a petting zoo? There was a petting zoo up there, remember? Because you lifted up the rock up there and all the ants were on <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah, that the separate part. I think someone has, uh, there's, I think someone bought the land or is looking into buying the land to revamp it. I'm not sure all the details on that, but if you uh if you want to check it out or downs ring yeah. yeah yeah that's great lots of bugs that's good that's good and um is there anything happening over halloween that you guys would recommend people to check out when it comes to the genre of horror scary stuff yeah it's fog fest go down to fog fest support all the local spooky people and filmmakers here mm-hmm. so much fun we'll be there yeah, Fog Fest is happening in November, so it's kind of extending the spooky season, you know? It's all year round for us, pretty much. <laughs> Fog Fest yeah. is definitely number one on the list, for sure. That's wicked. And um, there's a new little haunted walk here and where I'm from, in Mount Pearl, the haunting on Powers Pond. Check that out, too. Oh, yes, of course. There's all kinds of haunted walks. I, I seen the sign for that yesterday, actually. I didn't know it was a thing. The Haunting on Thorburn is amazing when we, we did that last year. It was yeah. so fun. Of course, Lester's Farm Haunted Walk. And there's a new one, the Harbor Haunt in Conception Harbor. I went to that last week, and it was so much fun. Um, it's for a great cause. They're trying to save the church that's on the property that they have to walk on. Mm-hmm. And um, then the guy who has set up that walk, actually, he he's from Ontario. He's been commissioned uh, in the past to work with uh, the Kenda's Wonderland Halloween Haunt. So he's, he's worked with them before. And and done so it's it's high level it's really good that's great oh that's great spooky season is great because we know that the second halloween's over the stores are going to be full with other holiday things so it's nice to extend it just a little bit that could be a little scary when you see that pop up so quickly but thanks so much for joining me today guys congrats on the new show i can't wait to check it out thank you so much tonight we learn all about bones body snatching sights unseen and scary movie magic Stick around because we'll be right back with our Halloween spooktacular on The Wall Show. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back. Tonight we learn about bones, body snatching, sights unseen, and scary movie magic. Let's get back to our Halloween spectacular. Hey Shane, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Man, I'll tell you, I've been eager to chat with you. You've got lots going on, and this is the perfect topic for you to be talking about. Today we're talking about Halloween. We're talking about all things spooky, and Newfoundland tends to be one of those spooky places. You are a creative in the field. Can you tell me why Newfoundland is such a great place for the genre of films you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, myself and the guys at Grindmine, we've been making films in Newfoundland since about 2017. We started off as friends with, like, no experience, just hey it's time to get together and try to make things and we were very fortunate that like you know when you're making horror and genre we have a million dollar backyard we are covered in mist fog surrounded by the harsh atlantic so it's just like 
I believe that Newfoundland is a is a genre gem, and I think you know what we do with Grindmind is just sort of trying to amplify that. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that you've done that's been a huge success, and it's readily available for people to be able to check this out. But you just did a new series on the Hague, which is obviously something that's super traditional to Newfoundland. Tell me about the inspiration for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So like, you know, we all grow up with stories of the hag and as a filmmaker and a low budget filmmaker at the time, I always thought it was, you know, the perfect terrifying tale to try and put together. So we did a no budget short back in about 2018. And when we were trying to, you know, post about it, we just sort of put out a call to say, hey, have you ever experienced the hag? And, you know, it was no time and our DMs were just flooded with Newfoundlanders who were like, yeah, I've had the hag. Here was what happened with me. And we sort of knew right then and there that this would be like an excellent topic to do a docu-series about. We could interview real Newfoundlanders about their experiences and then reenact them in this in the super spooky uh, cinematic way. And yeah, it's been a, it's been a blast in putting that together. So it's ironic because I never actually had the hag before I moved to Newfoundland. And when I got here, I was getting it like crazy. Not so much seeing stuff, but the sleep paralysis for sure. When people were sending in the stories, uh, is there one that really stands out with you? You mind sharing today? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of them really made the you know the hairs on the back of my my neck stand up. And I think you know what you just said is really relevant. One of the things that we sort of explore in the series is you know do Newfoundlanders experience it because we know about it so much? But we do have one episode where two twins from Ontario in their first night in Newfoundland at a campsite in Terra Nova experienced the hag slowly crawling up their bunk bed and terrifying them throughout the night. So it really brings in that world of is it this cultural thing that we know or is it the spooky island when somebody from directly outside comes in and experiences it. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And I mean, there's just countless ghost stories and things like that that are here that are special. And so... You guys have decided to really celebrate this. So you have an event coming up just in time for the spooky season. Tell me about Fogfest. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the thing is we're trying to make spooky season extend and go longer than October. And what we're doing with Fogfest is it is the Newfoundland's Horror Film Festival from November 15th to 20th, bringing the tidal wave of terror, what I like to call the final tidal wave of terror, the last you know drop of spooky season to St. John's. We have a launch party on uh, Wednesday night at the Rock House featuring legendary St. John's surf punk legends, uh, the Satans, along with the Order of the Precious Blood, a launch of our beer from Dildo Brewery, a purple cosmic sour called Siren Song. And then basically we kick off the film festival at the Majestic Theater from Thursday until Monday. We have a stacked lineup. We've got five nights of screenings plus days. We're bringing in Atlantic Canadian premieres, Canadian premieres, but also North American premieres of these really excellent genre films, along with performances by the, the Flemme Fatales and just like panels, workshops. We have filmmakers visiting from Canada, the US, UK, we're really trying to make this a party for Spooky in Newfoundland and show why we believe this place is the ideal place to be creating and celebrating genre in Canada. I love that. And I mean, what a great way for us to be able to extend our tourist season here as well. It's a perfect time of year to come here. It's when the fog and everything is going to get cold, but it's actually perfect for exactly what you're doing. Now, if somebody wants to attend Fogfest, how do they get tickets? How do they reach out to you guys or find out more? 
Absolutely. So, you know, Grindline and Fogfest, we've been just splattered all over the social. It's not hard to find there, but the most easy and direct route to get tickets is just hit up fogfest.ca. You'll see two buttons up top, one for the launch party and one for the festival at the Majestic. You can just click through there and select your screenings, grab a six pack to bring your friends, or you can get a festival pass, which gives you access to everything for over 40% off. Cool. That's great. And I I couldn't ask, uh, couldn't leave without asking this question, you know, being a health show. Why do you think it is that people love being scared? I think, honestly, it's sort of a primal thing. I think, you know, it, it's it's got to be something in our in our central nervous system and brain structure that, you know, goes all the way back to being cavemen. And I think ultimately being scared makes you feel alive, even if it's through you know, a, a sensory of watching a movie or, you know, maybe you're just, you got up and it's really dark in your room and you have to walk to the bathroom and you hear a creak. I think those things sort of like bring us back to, you know, despite the screens, despite politics, despite everything, it's sort of like this core, hey, I'm alive, my heart is beating and I'm in the world. And I think that's something that as simple as it is, is super valuable to just about anybody. That's cool. Be it scared, waking yourself up and feeling alive. That's great. That's exactly what I was hoping to hear. No, that's a, good luck with everything. Congrats on the Hag. It's an amazing production. And uh, I hope you guys have great success with the event this week. Thanks so much. And lastly, I would like to say that the Hag is available to watch on Bell 5 TV 1 right now. And you can join us at FogFest for the Blood Red Carpet premiere on November the 19th, Sunday. Dates are starting to get a little blurry, but yeah, we're bringing out cast and crew. We're doing a Q&A. Come see it at the Majestic. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you to all my spooky guests for joining me tonight. I hope you learned more about bones and the history of anatomy and how scientists learned about the human body. If you want a dose of spooky science, then pop down to Kitty Vitty Brewery and check out Dr. Injanowski this Monday night, October 30th. She'll share more about her work at the Bones and Brew event. Now, if you're looking to watch something close to home that chills your bones, you can find Brian Cord's new show, Sights Unseen, coming very soon on Bell 51. Lastly, you can check out the talented work of the Grindmind team in their terrifying series, The Hag, that's also on Bell 51 TV. And also take in all the horror flicks you can handle at FogFest. You can find FogFest on social media with all sorts of updates about their showings and events. Well, thanks for joining me tonight. Have yourself a fun and safe Halloween. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM. Yeah.